Hi, welcome back to Analyze Asia, a podcast dedicated to dissecting the pulse of business, technology, and media in Asia. I'm your host, Carol, and you're about to hear part two of our interview with Benedict Evans, who is an independent analyst and a venture partner. Don't forget to check out part one if you want to hear Benedict discuss the regulation of technology and the decoupling of the global supply chain. Now, on to part two. And of course, we can't have a conversation in 2020 without talking about the effects of COVID-19. You wrote about, and we all know that COVID-19 has accelerated digital transformation for a lot of industries. And for certain industries, the transformation, you know, in the past few months is more than uh, what they've experienced in the last half a decade, for example. So what are some of the forced experiments which COVID-19 can help us to, you know, understand this evolution of, of technology, for example? when it comes to Zoom for video conferencing, what it has or has not solved in terms of issues for us? Well, that could be a whole other podcast, I think. <laughs> I mean, I think there's a period of forced experiment and forced adoption and forced acceleration. So there's a whole bunch of stuff that we all knew was happening, that we would all have agreed was happening, no one would have argued about, and it gets pulled, pulled forward several years. There's a bunch of stuff that people maybe didn't think they were going to do or were not very convinced by that now they've had to try and see if you can make it work. And some of it won't. Like my parents have had to buy all their groceries online. They want to go back to the supermarket. They actually don't like buying groceries online. And, you know, everyone had to buy makeup online. You didn't have a choice. You had to buy shoes online. You didn't have a choice. And so not all of that will stick. I think there's a third thing, which is as you change any kind of channel or any kind of pattern of behavior, you don't just do the old thing, but with a new tool, you change how you do it. And so what's the story? I mean, the example that I was, the case study I always give here is there's somebody in the company whose job is to download a bunch of data out of SAP and put it into PowerPoint and then email and make a status dashboard and then email the status dashboard around to everybody. And step one is that someone says, hey, you know, you could actually just put that on Google Drive and then you wouldn't have to email it to people. And step two is that someone says, hang on a second, our SaaS platform should just be generating that dashboard automatically. Every time you get a new tool, you start by forcing the tool to fit the way you work. And then over time, you change the way you work to fit the tool. And so you start by printing out your email and all the email has to be carefully formatted. And then you go, hang on a second, it is okay to just reply with one line. And it doesn't need to be carefully formatted. And you change the way you work in order to fit the tool. And I think as everything has been forced online, step one is, well, all those meetings are going to have, I'm going to have those meetings, but as Zoom calls. And then step two is you think, well, hang on a second, what was the purpose of that meeting? And what are other ways that we would be able to do this? I mean, there's a great stat from Ofcom in the UK that I think in February, about 30% of consumers in the UK did a video call at least once a week and now it's 75%. So we've had this massive adoption of video calls. I think there's clearly everything that would have been an in-person meeting has been converted to video. And some of those will go back. Some of those will go back to coffee. But some of them you will think, hang on, would I really still have gone all the way across town to meet you? Let's just do a video call. And in 2019, it would never have been a video call for most people. Now you, you might say, yeah, let's do a video call. I think the same thing actually applies socially. You know, how many times have you said, let's meet next time we're in the same city? I'll see you when I'm in New York, I'll drop your line, we'll go and have dinner. And now you do a Zoom call. Will you stop doing Zoom calls once you can get on a plane again? Or will you do Zoom calls again? And so I think we're still sort of working out what all of that will look like. I mean, I think there's a sort of an underlying point I joked the other day. I think nobody knows anything for six months. 
We don't know what the exit from lockdown looks like. We don't know what return to normality looks like. We don't know where the economy and all that will settle, where all of these tools will settle. We don't know where our behavior will settle. And we think we know what we want to do. We'll find out. I mean, sort of sort of observation here, like a sort of very specific observation. Zoom exploded because they made it easy to get into a call. And there were all these reasons why it was hard to get into a call that no one had really noticed before. Or no one had asked, why do you have to do that? And why do you have to do this? And you see it when you use like Google Hangouts or whatever it's called this week. It's kind of painful that you need to give a number of things you have to do to get into the call. But what Zoom hasn't done is ask, why am I in the call? You now have this whole wave of companies trying to ask, well, why are you in the call? And what were you trying to do? And how could we change that? And I think we're going to have an absolute explosion of different kinds of productivity tool this month, next month, next six months, kind of changing what it means to work remotely. I also think that a lot of remote work will go away. You know, everyone's sort of intoxicated that they have video. And we all jumped into the foxhole and discovered, hey, we do have video. Like we'd never used it before, but we do all have high definition video cameras. We do have like easy, cheap, free video conferencing. And so step one is, oh, wow, this works. I think it takes longer to see all the intangible stuff that doesn't work. But I also think, for example, when you talk about, you know, your parents are going to, they're probably not going to do grocery shopping online anymore. It's probably because, for example, the the whatever platform that they use haven't really solved a lot of uh, what Zoom has done for um, video calling, right? Hasn't uh, got rid of a certain unease of use when it comes to, you know, buying groceries online. For example, I buy groceries only online now uh, in China, and that hasn't changed, even though we have now already in the post-COVID phase, at least here here in Shanghai, because the products are good enough for me to kind of stick with that habit, as most of these products, I think, are just more, quote-unquote, evolved, I would say, here in China. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a difference in here in that China sort of leapfrogged the retail of 1980. And that's the retail that I want to go back to. And so if you live in Shanghai, you know, the the, the stuff that I miss about London, Shanghai never had. <laughs> right. <laughs> so I think that's one issue. <laughs> or it had it in 1910. But, you know, you know, I want to go to that wonderful store that's been there since 1850. But in Shanghai, that got burnt down three times and bombed and so on. And so that's one issue. Look, I mean, this is sort of a high level point here. <laughs> That, you know, there you can, particularly for retail, you can put retail on a spectrum from retail as logistics to retail as experience. And there's some things where you know exactly what you want and you just want to get the thing. Like, I want a pair of size nine camper shoes for my son. I don't need to go and have like a retail experience. I just need a pair of size nine camper shoes. So I'll go to camper.com because Amazon's site is terrible for buying shoes. On the other hand, like I want to buy a book. I don't know what book. Sometimes I do. Sometimes I want that book. But sometimes, no, I'm going to go to a bookshop and I'm going to spend half an hour there and I'll come and I'll spend $200 and I'll walk out with, you know, three amazing art books I've never seen before and this weird Russian novel and this other thing. And Amazon is worthless for that. And so I think at a high level point, if you're in retail as logistics, you have a big problem. Or rather, there's an algorithm question. Like, what is the most efficient model? How quickly do I need it? How far away are you? What's the cost of square foot, cost per square foot? It's purely a convenience and unit economics question. Is it better for me to go to your store or for you to send it by mail or by courier or by somebody on a bike? And it's an algorithm. Then on the other hand, there is like, I want to buy a lamp for that corner of my room. 
I can't go on Amazon and search for lamps. I'm going to go and look in some interiors magazines and I'm going to go to three or four shops in London that sell stuff that I like and I'm going to go and scratch my head and then I'm going to go back to the second one and buy that lamp from Foscarini. So I think that side of, and, and again, it comes back to my point about acceleration. All of this stuff gets accelerated, but I don't think those underlying splits change. And a lot of the kind of the D2C business in the last couple of years has been working out new categories that you can sell online if you can come up with a different experience. But even with experience type of shopping, I'm getting all of this experience here in within the app. Because, for example, for, for shopping for books, I use both Amazon, but I also use Chinese apps. And these Chinese apps, I, I feel like I'm doing online window shopping where I get all these recommendations. It's as if I'm walking through a bookstore and browsing and having things unexpectedly you know, recommended to me because of their AI algorithm and because the way that the app is laid out that I can spend literally hours upon hours just window shopping and combining different stores. I'm, I'm browsing through a shoe store, a bookstore, you know, an interior decor store, almost all at the same time, but interchangeably. Whereas I think um, a lot of the, you know, like Amazon or the other shopping apps that um, non-Chinese um, use have, have, like, they're so, it's like they're in the Stone Ages in comparison to to the experience that I'm getting. Yeah, I mean, Amazon is not a retailer, it's a logistics company. And using Amazon.com is like using FedEx.com, except it's less well-designed. But, you know, I sort of come back to my point. I mean, there is a continuous process of working out what things can you convert to the Amazon model? And what things can you come up with some new online experience that will work for consumers? And A, not everything does. B, it depends where you live. So one of the ways I think about Amazon is you can live in the smallest town in America and you can buy anything that you could buy in New York, but you can't shop the way you can shop in New York. And so there's a whole layer of trying to create an experience around that. And some of that will work. Some of it will take longer than others. Some of it, no, actually, you'll still want to go to the store. But if you live in that small town in, in the middle of America, it doesn't matter how good that the app is, you're still going to have to buy it on Amazon. Last topic of our of today's conversation, you've written extensively also, or in certain presentations, you've written about smartphone and uh, the S-curve and beyond um, the smartphone. So first of all, where do you think we are uh, when it comes to smartphone and the S-curve? The beginning, the middle, the late stage? So I think any kind of gen technology, you can think of a new technology as following an S-curve in that there's a sort of an early period where like there's not much visible progress and it doesn't seem to work very well. And, you know, it seems like a kind of a dumb idea. And there's a period where it all suddenly works and it explodes. And this becomes amazingly exciting and everyone, everyone wants to know about it. And then there's a period where it becomes kind of boring because all the easy, obvious incremental stuff has been done. And very obviously, until electric came along, this is where cars were. I mean, can you really tell the difference between a 2005 BMW and a 2010 BMW? Like, not really. You can certainly tell the difference between a 2010 car and a 2020 car or a 2020 and a 2030 car, but you can't really tell the difference between a 1990 and a 2000 car or a 2000 and a 2010 car. Same thing in aeroplanes. And I think that's what happened in PCs. Like, can you really tell the difference between a new PC and a PC from five years ago? Like, no, not really. Smartphones are on that curve. I think there's still... I mean, everyone would like better battery life. I actually think, you know, the sort of newest high-end phones, the battery really does last all day. You know, we'd love to have a week, but that requires some new physics. But actually, I can't remember the last time my iPhone ran out of battery. And that's not just because I'm in lockdown. I think the really big place for innovation is actually in the camera. 
or for continued improvement is in the camera because now there's no you can't you now don't get a bad shot ever in daylight but it's still not could still be better at night it could be better with portrait mode with low light you know there's a whole layer of kind of computational photography that needs to get applied to that to make sure that every picture is actually the best picture possible of the, of the thing that you wanted but yeah we're definitely on the flattening out part of the s curve now and we're sort of thinking about what comes afterwards so and, and part of that means you ask what the next s curve is which is why people talk about vr or ar or things like that yeah that's exactly my next question what do you think the next curve uh, might be <laughs> so there's several answers to this one of them is that each previous curve was an order of magnitude bigger than the one before so we had mainframes and then we had pcs and then we had the web which was on pc but it gave vastly more people reasons to buy a pc and then we have smartphones and that means that it's so much bigger that it pulls in all the innovation and it sucks in all the investment. And so to begin with, smartphones don't compete with PCs, but the market's so much bigger that that becomes the center of the tech ecosystem. The problem is there's four, four and a half billion people have a smartphone now, and there's only five and a half billion adults on earth, and the next billion people don't have any money. So it's not apparent that there's another ecosystem that's 10x bigger. Like we already, we got to everyone, we connected everybody. So there's not another generational step change that has massively more people because we've already got to everyone. So that's the of the kind of a deterministic problem. I think the second is that the sort of the two candidates for another device are VR and AR. I think VR is clearly in a winter at the moment. You know, it's in a kind of a trough of despondency. The challenge I have with VR is that no one has worked out anything that isn't a game, really. And if you'd shown somebody in 1980 a modern games console, they would have said, oh my God, this is amazing. It's going to change the world. And it was, but that turned out to be about 150 million people, which is a big business, but it's not four or five billion people. It's not a universal product. And I think you put on the headset, you say, oh my God, this is amazing. Then you take it off and walk away, which is how most people react to a games console demo. You see that you walk past the Microsoft store in the mall, you see the Xbox demo in the window, you go, oh, that's very pretty. And then you walk past and I think that's the danger for VR, that it doesn't work out something that's broader than games. And so far it hasn't. And I think you could argue that it won't, because it is inherently deeper and narrower than games consoles. AR, I, it may, and this is sort of a problem, a term means lots of different things, but I would say AR as in I wear a pair of glasses and I see things. A, I see information. B, I see stuff that looks like it's there. It's potentially the next smartphone. I have a pair of glasses, now I don't need a TV. Now this whole table is my computer screen. We sit down for coffee and I wanna show you something and I put it on the table. I wanna show you that lamp, I put it on the table. And you're wearing the same glasses, so you see the lamp as well. Oh, that's kind of pretty, but what about in, what about in red? Oh, that looks better. Um, and that's not science fiction anymore, that's just kind of engineering. You know, we can kind of do that now. We don't have it as a, we're years from having it as a consumer product, but we can kind of do that now. Now, there's a counterexample argument to that that says most people don't go anywhere or do anything interesting. Most people don't, if you had a pair of glasses that could tell you something interesting about what you're looking at, well, most people live in the suburbs, they drive to work, they drive to the mall, they drive home. They don't need, that's not useful for them. I think we'll find out. It does feel a little bit like people arguing about smartphones in 2000. Like, do you really need the internet in your pocket? Like, how often did you need to look up a cinema time in your pocket? How often did you need to know what the share price was in your pocket? Most people don't really need that. 
you know, the consumer, the desktop internet will always be much better. Like we, so like maybe I don't know. We'll find out. But those are the candidates. I think the other story in here is to think about kind of underlying architectural layers. So like we went from databases to open source to web to cloud to SaaS to client server. Now, do you really need the internet in your pocket? <laughs> like how often did you need to look up a cinema time in your pocket? How often did you need to know what the share price was in your pocket? Most people don't really need that. You know, the consumer, the desktop internet will always be much better. Like we, so like maybe I don't know. We'll find out. But those are the candidates. I think the other story in here is to think about kind of underlying architectural layers. So like we went from databases to open source to web to cloud to SaaS to client server. Now we go to machine learning and we go to crypto. And I don't think anyone would say there's not going to be something after machine learning. And there's not going to be something after crypto. And so that process just continues and continues. I think the device question is a bit more difficult. It may be that the smartphone it just is the device now, and it will and it'll be fold and we'll have small folding devices and rolling up devices and thinner and lighter smart, but it will still basically be a smartphone. And do you think five G is going to really you know change up things for us? No. <laughs> I mean, I think you know five G. How can I put this? It's kind of it's an interesting conversation because I think the best way to put it is 5G is a continuation of continuous increases in speeds we've had since the 90s. And in mobile, those on fixed line, those speeds kind of come in a continuous process. And in mobile, they come in waves. And the increase in speed makes new stuff possible. So like you couldn't do Netflix on the broadband that we had in 2000 or 2005. You couldn't do Snapchat on 3G. You couldn't do Google Maps on narrowband. And so, yes, amazing stuff becomes possible because we have more speed. The difficulty is that people talk about 5G as though it's somehow a difference in that progression. Whereas what it actually is, it's just that process continuing. We've had steadily faster speed since 2005 since 1995, 5G means we continue to get steadily faster speed. It's not conceptually different from 4G or 4.5G or any of the previous increases in speed we've had. You're not going to do robotic surgery over 5G or use the fibre connection that goes into the basement of the hospital. You're not going to walk down the street wearing a VR headset. Understood. And I guess we'll just have to see what the future has uh, in store for us. And now that was my last question, but I do have one more. Do you have anything like a book, an article, movie, podcast, anything that you'd like to recommend to our listeners? Something that have, you know, inspired you um, recently? I just popped into my mind. I suddenly the other day I saw a video of Donald Trump being asked what book he'd read lately. <laughs> and he said his own book. <laughs> and they keep asking him, can you recommend a book that inspired you? And he said, yes, my book. <laughs> It inspired <laughs> And the man has clearly never read a book in his entire Ah, book that his wife wrote on him is uh, also trending these days. Oh, you don't you mean his cousin? The one he said, or his niece. So his niece wrote a book saying he's a terrible human being that has become a bestseller. <laughs> Sorry, I, I always assumed that that was one of his ex-wife who wrote the book. Well, you know, how many does he have? You need to put it. You need to put his all his ex-wives on blockchain so you can keep track. <laughs> All right. And um, last one up. Uh, do I have something to recommend? I don't know. I don't. I try and read very widely and very broadly, and I read outside of technology. And I don't really read business books, and I don't really read technology books because I spend all day thinking about that. I just read Adam Tooze's book about the German economy in the 30s and 40s, which is absolutely fascinating. Sort of thinking about the kind of the mechanics of industrial production and genocide, and you know what it means that everyone in the bureaucracy knew that they'd sent 
several hundred thousand Hungarian Jews to Auschwitz and hadn't sent any, any grain there. They knew what that meant. All those people who said we didn't know, but you knew you sent 300,000 people there and you knew you didn't ship any grain there. So you did actually know what that meant. So that's fascinating. I'm reading a memoir of the Congress of Vienna now, which is tremendously entertaining. There's a young story of a young Frenchman who walked 600 miles to Vienna with a letter of introduction. And people say, well, if he walked 600 miles here, that's worth something. So I'll find him a job. It reminds me of people in Silicon Valley saying you have to come to Silicon Valley. But no, I try and read things that are not to do with what I'm working on. No, those sound very like very interesting recommendations. Thank you. And how can our listeners find you? So, well, my parents had good SEO. So if you Google Benedict Evans, you'll mostly come up with me. I have a website where I write and post presentations and there's a sign, sign up to the newsletter that I do every week, which now has a premium version and a free version. Um, and I, obviously, anybody intelligent enough to be watching this should sign up to the premium version. <laughs> Can you talk a little bit more about your premium newsletter? So I've been doing it since this newsletter since 2013, and I do it more or less every week. And it's my notes for the week on what happened and what I saw that was interesting and important. So the way I sort of described it is like if your chief exec said, what are the five things that happened this week? What are the five things that, you would, that were interesting? What are the five things you would mention? And what does that one mean? What are the three sentences you would say about that as to what that one means? So there's such a fire hose at the moment of news and headlines and technology has become everything and there's so much. I try and say, no, here are five or 10 things that were important and what they meant and what might happen next. And five or 10 sort of interesting blog posts or essays or pieces of statistics or presentations that someone's done to explain something. It's your cheat sheet for the week. And you know people seem to like it. There's 150,000 subscribers now. So you know enough people get some value from it that I keep doing it. Definitely. And I've been really enjoying the essays that you uh, wrote on your website, which is ben-evans.com as well. I love all the you know, lessons of history that you can draw or these examples and parallels that you make. Thank you. Yeah. Well, you can also find Analyst Asia on any podcasting platform. And we are also on Twitter. You can find us at uh, Analyze Asia. That's Analyze with a S. Feel free to tweet to us. Feel free to email us. Feel free to recommend us to more of your friends. And now thank you so much to Benedict Evans for coming onto the show again. This has been a very enlightening conversation. And I hope our listeners have um, found the same. And uh, I welcome you to come back to the show sometime in the future. Right. Thank you.